0: Hi, my name is Leo WT, and you have found your way to the Conversations Podcast. Conversations exist to create spiritually minded conversations about life. We desire to create safe space for dialogue and community. We desire to come together regularly and intentionally to generate conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everyone is welcome. Conversation. Uh, there, frankly, at this point that I'm at on my journey, there could not have been a book title that was better worded to catch my attention. <laughs> I was like, "Yes, here we go. This is happening." <laughs> I, I, almost, I mean, I think I immediately bought it too, to be honest with you. So <laughs> it happened. Great. I was like, it, "You were, you were swinging." past the fences in my <laughs> mind with this book. And I know that you totally wrote it with me in mind. So, <laughs> all right, my friends, I think we are live on Facebook. If we're not, I've just got my radio announcer voice on for myself. If you're here, you probably know this, but my name is Leo WT and this is Conversations Official. You have found your way to our weekly broadcast. Uh, we go live here and then I put this video on YouTube and I put it in podcast. Form, uh, which I use, I usually uh, visit on Spotify, but it's completely up to you where you want to visit visit it. So, I am joined tonight by my version of a rock star. Um, <laughs> for those of you who know me, I'm incredibly nerdy, and a lot of my nerdiness, folks, focuses are on spirituality. Um, and you know, I came up from a Christian background. So, our guest tonight, Kristen Dumais. When I saw her book title, I I instantly felt validated, excited, horrified, and engaged. Um, Kristen is the author of Jesus and John Wayne, How Evangelical Christianity Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. I think I nailed it. Um, but I'm gonna let her introduce herself right now while I start to share our um, share our video and then we'll dive into the meat of this conversation. I'm so excited about it.
1: Great, okay, thank you for having me. Yes, yeah, so the book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And uh, this book just came out uh, this past summer and so it's six months old now and if anything more relevant today than uh, the day it was published. And essentially it's a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism and I trace this uh, connection for uh, really from the late 19th century up to the present. Uh, In fact, I just finished writing a new preface for the paperback uh, that will come out this summer that brought it all the way up through. Uh, the 2020 election. So um, but obviously events of this week also (laughs) uh, kind of need to be um, processed in light of this. So it's a history of religion, but a history of evangelicalism, not primarily as a kind of theological construct or a set of theological beliefs as much as it is understanding white evangelicalism as a culture, as a cultural movement, um, a cultural identity. And one that is um, formed and shaped through uh, consumer culture, through popular culture, through popular evangelical books and magazines, and through Christian contemporary music and through Christian film, and um, and the whole real you know Christian radio, Christian publishing industry, all of this. And so that's really my source base. And so I think for. Um, people who are not evangelicals, who haven't grown up in this world, it's, it's opening up a whole new world that you never knew existed. For people who did grow up inside this the subculture, uh, the most frequent comments uh, that I get from readers uh, who are evangelicals or former evangelicals is some version of "This is the story of my life," mm-hmm. and so because it's a it's a story of popular culture, it's a story of what books did you read, what you know, rallies did you go to, uh, what did you grow up you know listening to or watching, you know, Veggie Tales, things like that. So it's a popular history of evangelicalism that demonstrates how central white patriarchal power has always been to family values evangelicalism and um, how it's really at the heart of evangelical militancy uh, Mm. that has obvious implications for 2016 and for where we are today.
0: Absolutely. You know, something that you said really just struck me here. I'm just going to add, I'm going to add that to a list of things that you've said that struck me because I'm literally, I'm fangirling over the book. And I'm not, (laughs) like, I've been saying this not in your presence. So you need to know it's not even hyperbole. But I always felt growing up... uh, as a person who grew up uh, assigned female at birth. And from the age of five, I understood myself to be a person that was called to be a pastor. Uh, one of my earliest memories is me standing on my grandparents' porch uh, with an upside down orange Gideon's Bible, because orange is my favorite color. Um, and I had probably 30 Bibles and I led a full service, right? And so when I when I went out into the world, I found myself to be kind of like a man without a flag, especially after I came out, because my whole culture was what you're talking about. And only through reading your book and having conversations that have sprung up because of the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter and everything, only through these conversations have I come to understand that this was my culture. Yeah. And so while I don't know my ethnicity, I definitely know my culture. And so to read your book was to hear my story um, reflected in all of its insanity, but you, you wove it together and it made sense. Yeah. And it was um, just amazing, um, amazing, to be honest.
1: Yeah, and you know, it, it is a culture, it is a cultural identity, absolutely. And it's a cultural identity that um, then will link conservative white evangelicals to others with similar cultural identities, mm-hmm. which, you know, are often, uh, you know, secular conservatives, kind mm-hmm. of this God and country, yes. um, patriotism, masculinity, yep. uh, and and will actually separate them from other Christians who, you know, more progressive Christians, Christians who do not embrace this cultural identity. But what's so often invisible to evangelicals themselves is the fact that this is a cultural identity um, because they present it as simply belief, as biblical truth that was handed down for centuries and is just plain old generic Christianity, right? And so they're blind to the fact that it is actually this cultural identity.
0: Yes, it sure is. And you can't, like, evangelicalism, I, I don't know if you know the number on this, and I, I keep meaning to look it up because I have this conversation regularly. Uh, I don't know what percentage of the Christian church worldwide is evangelical. Um but but the totality of church in general, I mean, even the Pope would, would seem to say that a lot of what evangelicals are preaching and billing as gospel truth is nothing more than cultural dogma and cultural mores that are related to the people that said them, not to the greater movement of Christianity.
1: Right, and uh, I mean, th- there is no hard and fast number really because definitions of evangelical change so dramatically. And you know, part sure. of my point here is that definitions really need to be you know culturally specific. Uh, you can have a kind of theological rubric or so and then find how many evangelicals around the world fit into that. But because I do mm-hmm. really um, privilege this cultural identity, that's where I, I think it makes a, a pretty big difference whether or not you're you know, a white evangelical uh, in the United States or you know somebody who might you know scholars might categorize as an evangelical in um uh, you know in Indonesia, um, yeah. But but even there like that doesn't mean that's completely separate. And what I want to look at is you know what are the connections between white evangelicals in the United States and evangelicals in Indonesia, and what are the differences? And so we really need to be thinking more along along those lines. I think just complicate our our categories. And, mm-hmm. um, and just understand, yes, how, how much of this is is shaped mm-hmm. by our, our cultural context and, and, you know, yeah. really throughout history. That's, that's the case. Um, and the flip side is also true, by the way, you talked about, you know, the, the Pope, um, um, you know, kind of g- coming out against some of the, this uh, you know, conservative evangelicalism in, in some ways, but the flip side is also true in that how evangelicals self-identify as Bible-believing Christians, right, and as you know, holding the authority of the Scriptures and so forth, so on. Uh, many. Christians who would not qualify as evangelical or identify as evangelical look at that and say, well, we uphold the authority of the scriptures too, maybe in a different way, right? Right, Or, you know, we believe that these things are important too. And I have that all the time with my students when we try to categorize, you know, understand their religious formation and where would you place yourself? And then we read the, you know, standard definition that the National Association of Evangelicals supplies. And there's always people in the class who are like, well, I'm not evangelical but that applies to me too right and so we have to be really careful with with who gets to define evangelicalism on which terms and um and that's a really interesting conversation that scholars and journalists and evangelicals themselves are having right now
0: I was yeah I was just gonna say let's let's touch on that for a second because I don't so I I kind of I don't know what I am like. I grew up as a Christian and for the past like seven or eight years, I probably would have identified as like someone who's like post-Christian and spiritual. But over the summer, this summer, I live in small town America and there were George Floyd based protests happening and, uh, and members of the religious community were not showing up. And I I apparently have gone to enough counseling uh, and enough time has passed that I was ready. And I was like, well, screw it. If no one else is showing up, I'm showing up because I have as much um, you know, college education as most of these people. So I showed up with a collar on um, and that kind of made me realize that like, this is a space that I can still occupy, uh, but I don't fit in the realm of evangelicalism. So, can you kind of explain to people what we are talking about when we talk about evangelicalism, especially in the context of your book? Because it's not just one denomination. And I think that's what confuses some people.
1: Yeah, evangelicalism is always tricky because it does not follow along denominational lines, which doesn't mean you can't identify denominations as evangelical. We actually do the National Association right. of Evangelicals, you know, is this collection. Of different denominations so right now the southern baptist convention which didn't formerly formerly as evangelical now does and now dominates evangelicalism so southern baptists we're talking about assemblies of god um just a lot of uh really um uh, kind of independent non-denominational churches tend to be yes. non-denominational you're evangelical for the most part my own yep. denomination i'm a member of the christian reformed church and okay. uh, it's categorized as evangelical. So although I personally do not identify as, a, as an evangelical um, because mm-hmm. of what I know and uh, <laughs> because of the, yeah. the cultural history involved, I have been deeply shaped by aspects of this, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, again, largely through this consumer culture. So uh, all of which is to say, if you don't quite know what an, ev- an evangelical is, it's not you, right? It's evangelicalism, right. it's tricky. Yeah. Um, And so, so again, evangelicals will define themselves, uh, evangelical leaders, um, through kind of this, this rubric of beliefs and commitments. Mm -hmm. So Bible believing that pulled the authority of the scriptures, again, kind of implying that other Christians don't, at least not as well, Uh, right? (laughs) Right. Conversionist. So this born again experience is really important. Now, what that looks like can vary from one evangelical to another, but this need for a kind of conversion experience um, and then also, um, uh, a kind of, Christocentrism is the the big word for um, putting the atonement of Christ at the center of the theology. And then mm-hmm. activism. So you don't just believe these things, but you're going to act out of them. And then you're going to evangelize, so evangelical, and and, yeah. and and try to you know convert others into this. So that's yeah. the basic definition. Um, and um, but for me as a historian, I really want to look at the historical development. And so then you can start looking at, OK, who who exemplified this evangelicalism in, earlier in American history? And this was really the kind of revivalist movement, that not the formal mm-hmm. denominations back in the 18th, 19th century, right? It's more this revivalist movement, camp meetings and itinerant pastors and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so very populist movement. And then by the early 20th century, you can get into, um, I mean, a lot of Christians were evangelicals, including many progressives, um, social reformers, and so on. Um, but then by the 1920s, that's when you kind of have this split, um, the uh, modernists versus fundamentalists. And fundamentalists, uh, evangelicals kind of go into that camp. Not all of them, many of them stay in the main line, but they stop kind of getting defined as evangelical for the most mm-hmm. part, certainly by, you know, evangelicals themselves later in the, <laughs> the century. And um, so then by the 1940s, that's when you have the National Association of Evangelicals form, taking all these kind of splinter groups, these fundamentalists, and, and uh, who, many of, of whom were not in control of major denominations, and said, hey, let's band together, let's unite um, together, we're going to be stronger together, and Billy Graham was really at the heart of this, and he becomes this celebrity figure that is a beacon and kind of um, so much so that my, my graduate advisor, George Marson, I, I write this in the book, um, once defined evangelical, I think I write this in the book, can't remember what got edited out, but as anybody who <laughs> likes Billy Graham, right, by the 1960s, <laughs> 1970s, if you like Billy Graham, you're an evangelical, you're an evangelical. And, and I think that, that kind of a cultural definition is actually really helpful, right, yeah. because it's who are you listening to, who are right. you in community with? Um, and yep. that's, that's evangelical. So then I would take it further, uh, and have in some writings, you know, an evangelical is anybody who grew up listening to focus on the family radio, who watched veggie uh, tales, anybody who shopped at a Christian bookstore. All right. right? <laughs> all of these things. That I'm just going to keep raising my hands for all of them. <laughs> exactly. Right. So that is who an evangelical is. Now it's, it's not like you're either a real evangelical or a fake evangelical or whatever. It's so it's, right. it's how deeply immersed were you in this culture? Mm-hmm. How deeply mm-hmm. formed were you by these cultural products? And that's that's mm-hmm. how I work with evangelicalism. I think that's quite different from many previous historians of evangelicalism who tend to be evangelicals and, um, theologically inclined. And so they still go with the more formal theological definition. Um, right. many of them are also men. Okay. Almost all of them. And so the <laughs> consumer culture, you know, many of them haven't actually gone into a Christian bookstore because
0: that's where their wives were. Right. 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 <laughs> it is. Ah, oh, that's so funny. And I, I think that I personally found the way that you explain it as a culture to be the most effective way, uh, like tool for me to talk about it, Uh, because people ask me all the time, well, like, what are you? And like to say I to say I grew up as a Christian is such a small way to try to explain, you know what I mean? Like the focus on the family and the Rebecca St. James and <laughs> purity culture. And what would people think if they hear that I'm a Jesus freak and, you know, and, uh, all these things that came along with it. And I think one of the biggest things that I've taken away, um, and, and one of the things that you really hint at, and you, not by hint, I mean, there's no hint it's, it's your subtitle, <laughs> but there is some certain, like, I would say, um, like unholy enmeshments that come along with this particular brand of evangelicalism. Because even even if you're like you said, if you're an evangelical in India, it's going to look very different than white evangelicalism. And I think that uh, I have to say this phrase, or I'm going to forget it. But I I was at the gym before I came here. um, And I had this thought that, you know, there's a phrase like bad theology kills. But I think that what we see with white uh, evangelicalism is bad theology gives a license to kill yeah. in so many situations. And I think that's kind of what we're, what we're seeing in the United States right now. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on what we are, what we experience this week as, as a, as a nation, right. Based on what you know of evangelicalism and involvement, you know? Yeah. That's a big-
1: <laughs> no. So first I'll take a step back and then I'll, I'll come back to that. So yeah. you know, that part of the subtitle, the corrupted of faith Um, and fractured a nation. I think the fracture of the nation isn't that um, controversial. The corrupted of faith part was something that I gave great consideration to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before we went through so many iterations of a subtitle before we landed on this one. I've always considered this my book on evangelical masculinity and militarism. Mm -hmm. And Um, So early on in the titling process, we got word, we being my editor and myself, uh, from the uh, sales team that we were not allowed to use the words masculinity or militarism anywhere in the subtitle or title. Um, oh, no. They were too big, uh, and this is a trade book, right? Uh, so they <laughs> want people to pick it off the shelf. So that was obviously a dilemma. So that's yes. essentially what the book is about. And so uh, we went back and forth for months, and um, time was really running out. And then we ended up with this one. And mm-hmm. um, they actually gave me the option at this at this point. You know, do you you could use um, how I evangelicals transformed a faith. Um, Mm -hmm. Or, you know, corrupted, I actually came up with corrupted and I actually went with that and I thought you know transformation can be a good thing it often is and that's not what we're talking about here, but my hesitation to go with corrupted is because I mean this is a work of history, but Mm -hmm. that part of the subtitle is not a historical claim, and I want to be very Mm -hmm. clear about that that's a Mm -hmm. theological claim, and there is a a kind of critical framing of this book Mm -hmm. I am a professing Christian. Uh, but Mm -hmm. mostly I am just taking evangelicals at their word here, right? I am, I'm taking these Bible believing Christians, you know, self-proclaimed at their word. And what I do in this book is I show how time and again, evangelicals explicitly rejected very clear biblical teaching, at least about as clear as biblical teaching comes, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) Bible's a complicated book, but, um, teachings like uh love your neighbor as yourself you know right at the Mm -hmm. heart of of of, biblical teaching uh too ambiguous no (laughs) no turn the other cheek love Mm -hmm. your enemies uh the Mm -hmm. fruit of the spirit right all of these things like i've explicitly not to mention the whole doctrine of the trinity But, you know, I have case after case where these Bible believing Christians explicitly rejected the plain teaching and said, Mm -hmm. you can't raise your sons into strong men by telling them to turn the other cheek, you know, or fruit Mm -hmm. of the spirit end up being, oh, that's great for the ladies, right? But that's not what we need for strong Christian leadership and not the leadership that this moment requires, whatever the moment was, because there's always a crisis. Um, There's always a moment. Exactly. So there's always, um, this, this, um, that's what I'm getting at in the corrupted of faith. And, Mm -hmm. and that links to our, our present moment as Mm -hmm. well. Right. Because, um, what we end up then is a faith that, uh, celebrates aggression, um, Mm -hmm. militancy that condones Mm -hmm. violence for the sake Mm -hmm. of maintaining order and for the sake of pursuing righteousness as, they define it right internally, as they
0: define it. Right.
1: Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And so, uh, honestly, as I was researching this book, the further into this research I got, the more, um, disturbed I became when I mm-hmm. saw the implications and I saw the long-standing patterns going back generations, justifying violence, supporting preemptive war, condoning the use of torture, um, you know, violence, uh, that was just, it just permeated evangelical mm-hmm. um teachings whether you know it was it just rhetorical well i don't know then you look at evangelicals and foreign policy you look at the survey data you look at you know on, on guns and um on um on on uh police uh yeah. brutality on yep. black lives matter on all these things across the board and i i honestly like became more and more disturbed uh, the more i researched then I came mm-hmm. to the point of having to write this up and, you know, wondering, am I going too far here? <laughs> am I, mm-hmm. am I going too far? Cause what I'm seeing is really chilling. Yeah. And this is the book. This is where the book ended up. And I finished writing the book in the summer of 2019. And then it's mm-hmm. in production for a long time. And it was, it was released summer of 2020. And so there's a lot of months there, right. Where the book is out of my hands and we're just watching, yeah. watching yeah. and things continued to escalate and all of if anything the book is um you know too reserved that Mm -hmm. in terms of the implications for violence implications for um Uh, This us versus them mentality and what that looks Mm -hmm. like. um, Implications in terms of embrace of authoritarianism. That's very Mm -hmm. much a theme of this book. And all of the evidence was right in front of us, right? It was all there. And for people who have lived it, there is nothing new in this book. Absolutely. It's just the pieces are all put together. Yes. Um, so yes, what we see in terms of the Capitol, the vast majority of white evangelicals were not storming the Capitol, right? Yes.
0: Let's not, I don't want to make that claim, right? right, right. But.
1: <laughs> but what always interests me is, but where are the sympathies? Um, where, where are the lines drawn as this is yeah. too far? Yes. Um, and what I'm seeing is evangelicals who already expressed um, grave concern about Donald Trump are loud and clear, right? Calling Mm -hmm. out, this is wrong, this is terrible, this is, come on, Christians, we need to, you know. But anybody who was already supporting him, which is the majority, Mm -hmm. um, with very few exceptions, I'm seeing a lot of, oh yeah, well, Black Lives Matter was worse, Where you know, or this wasn't, this was Antifa. I see a lot of that in my circles um, that I'm observing. Um, And again, um, uh, really dismissing or justifying what we saw and to me, as somebody concerned about American democracy, uh, and the resiliency of our institutions and norms that that concerns me deeply
0: yeah I, and the thing is, I don't want to be well, i will I will be, and I have been. and i I've taken bricks through my window for being like whatever that that is what it is. but but people will label the conversation that we're having as anti-American. But here's the thing. Yeah. I'm actually pretty deeply American. American <laughs> is my context. I mean, for goodness sakes, I look like a straight white American male. I'm I am actually none of those things except for white. Um, but but I look like those things. But I'm actually, I think I'm deeply American, American enough to believe that we've never actually lived up to the American ideal. Yeah. And 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 this is not that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, like if you're really going to be America, you cannot behave like you're behaving right now. Yeah. And, and for some reason the the, the voices that are cutting through right now are the ones that are saying, well, we supported him then we're not backing down. It's almost like a pride based entrenchment. You know what I mean? I just don't understand it. And I think that there are so many pulpits that did preach this, this today, there are so many pulpits that did preach, like, this is the time for justice and, and, and this is not of God. And there was good exegesis today. Yes. Yeah. Why do you think we continue to hear so loudly the bad exegesis and the bad theology?
1: <laughs> I mean, there was beautiful exegesis today. My own home home church, a gorgeous, gorgeous sermon, um, powerful. Yeah. Um, why do we continue to hear? I think because the vast majority of preachers are saying nothing um, mm. or or next to nothing. Um, mm-hmm. many, I mean, one of the themes of this book really, and certainly in terms of um, what we've seen in recent years is the limitations of religious leadership that many mm-hmm. pastors are discovering that they don't actually lead their congregations and mm-hmm. they haven't for a long time that their congregations again are deeply formed, um, by other sources, by mm-hmm. the talk radio they're listening to, by the Christian radio they're listening to, by the books that they're reading, right? Um, By their echo chambers now. And pastors, you know, uh, when they are preaching along, you know, aligned with this culture, these values, they're great. And then they can, you know, convince themselves that they are leading because they're right out in front of the direction that everybody's moving. So they feel Mm -hmm. like leaders. But as soon as they try to nudge away um, from this direction, that's when they realize they're not leading at all they're being pushed and and they're going to end up on the curb and i've talked to many pastors who have been pushed out of their churches or those who have just resigned and they realize the limits of their religious leadership and that's absolutely a theme that's a theme i bring out a bit in this book and it's very much what i've been hearing from religious leaders since this book has come out there's just a lot of people who are afraid to say things not just because they're afraid to lose their job um many um, pastors pastors know that if they cross their congregations <laughs> or powerful people in their congregations or yeah. institutions, their donors, or magazines, their subscribers, that yeah. they will not just be out of a job or, you know, like out of a lot of money, um, but they will also lose the opportunity to, as they put it, minister to this flock. Yes, you know, and will. at <laughs> what point, I wonder, is it, you know, are you, do you have to just concede that you're not actually ministering to this flock?
0: right absolutely yeah that's a that's a conversation um my so i i'm starting seminary uh actually in a couple of weeks here uh it's taken me 10 years to get to this point i was accepted to like multiple grad schools and seminaries before this but this is the moment in history that i get to go uh, and i was talking to my my friend who i like to call my like Pastor, friend, mentor. Uh, So he's the pastor of the church that I'm at right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then I was talking to another UCC pastor from Portland and and we were kind of all talking about like how the balance of, um, you know, like being there to like take care of your flock, but also being there to like just preach the gospel and how sometimes just preaching the gospel, if you're a pastor that really takes that seriously, it will get you into hot water. Yeah. Right. Because there are there, especially if you are in a rural community or like, so, so let's say we're talking in Olean, right. If I'm a pastor in Olean, New York, which is where I live uh 13.5,000 people declining by the second. Um, <laughs> but if I, if I'm a pastor here and I come out with the real gospel truth today, you know what I mean? If I come out and I say like, this is not of God, like Jesus very specifically said, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And when people are being shot in the street with a, pr- a proven predisposition uh, to be like a proven uh, predisposition of law enforcement to shoot them because of the color of their skin, that is not loving your neighbor as yourself. What if you say that here in Western New York? There's a solid pers- there's a solid chance that you're going to get pushback from your vestry, from your board, from, you know, on Facebook, like whatever it is. So, so. Like you said, at what point is their leadership? And at what point is there like, we're, you know, someone's a dancing monkey who's trying to keep it together and keep everybody interested. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. So we have to understand again, this is a lar- largely a populist movement. Um, not exclusively though and that's something you try to show in this book too it's it's mm. not that there are not people pulling the strings right there are incredibly powerful powerful forces yes. behind the scenes here this yeah. book um, gets into some of it there are other books that that bring it out even more so I would recommend um, um, Uh, let's see, Katherine Stewart's Power Worshippers, Sarah Posner's Unholy, and um, oh, Ann Nelson's Shadow Network. All of those are going to illuminate the behind the scenes uh strategizing all of the money that's happening, right? That and mm-hmm. and then what I'm looking at is more the the outward facing kind of front end of this in terms of right. Christian publishing, in terms of the networks, the alliances, the gospel coalition, the SBC, and all of that. Mm-hmm. But there's also behind this, you know, in, in Ann Nelson's words, the shadow network as well. Mm-hmm. And so this is not purely a populist movement, um, but these are people who have whose values and ideals whose faith has been deeply formed in Mm -hmm. very intentional ways by their pastors many of their pastors or their pastors Mm -hmm. pastors by these organizations right and then and now we are seeing the fruit of this and this has been going on for several generations now Mm -hmm. right and Mm -hmm. again very well funded with political connections very clearly clear alliances um, and that's what we're talking about, but it's, it's not just you know, behind the scenes and it's not just populist. It's this really incredibly powerful uh, alliance across um, you know, top to bottom.
0: It is. It really is. And I think, well, I mean, I think that's what makes it particularly impacting at this moment in history is that it is both and, right? Uh, And so I like to think about that all the times, like as an organizer, I like to think about the ways that that can work positively, right? Uh, (laughs) But I think what we're seeing now is like maybe, uh, I mean, the system is not backfiring. It's working as it was intended to. Would you mind telling people a little bit about uh, you know, I threw out the, the quiverful example that you have, but the, the 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 strategy that was in place to get people in religious uh or to get religious people in places of power politically, and talk a little bit about that. Yeah,
1: so I mean in this book I try to look at uh pockets across the evangelical subculture, right? And so you have mm-hmm. the quiverful movement, homeschool movement, which you know, if you just look at that, you think, oh, come on, that's that's marginal, right? That's extreme. That's, that's not right. what really, that's not the mainstream evangelicalism. But one of the real projects of this book was to map out the connections between mm-hmm. the admittedly fringe and then the mainstream. And so you've got, yeah. you know, um, Bill Gothard fringe, yes, but oh, look how similar he is when push comes to shove to James Dobson, who is by no stretch of the imagination's fringe, right? He's mainstream, absolutely yeah. at the center. Yeah. Um, yep. And so, yes, later in the book, then I talk about the homeschool movement and uh, the quiverful movement, which yes, fringe, right? But also reality TV stars, right? So I'll, you know, yep. bringing this, um, <laughs> and then you've also got the, uh, just the, the idea of affinities, right? And so conservative evangelicals would look at the uh the Duggar family would look at you know the homeschool culture and if they aren't homeschooling there there's a sense of those people are a little more faithful right those those are a little bit better a little bit more pure like not for me I can't handle that but um (laughs) but kind of again alliances and you know they're representing faith they're representing you know uh you know, in this, in this hostile culture, you know, they're, they're yep. brave, they're courageous. And, and so again, these affinities of who do you, who do you sympathize with and who do you look up to? Um, so yeah, in the, um, I, I look at the homeschool movement, I look at folks like Doug Wilson and Doug Phillips um, um, and Vision Forum mm-hmm. and a Generation Joshua within that homeschool movement, which is you know, an explicit plan to, um, ha- have a pipeline uh, through Patrick Henry College um, from homeschoolers into this like homeschool academy of Patrick Henry College and then direct into the halls of Congress into, mm-hmm. into DC positions of power. And they did it, they were incredibly mm-hmm. successful. And you know, if you look at the Republican party and if you look at the, this kind of pipeline, you absolutely see it. And so these, these pretty hardcore values Mm-hmm. Very, very hardcore patriarchy, um, mm-hmm. female submission, Christian nationalism—again, mm-hmm. hardcore—and um, this is who is then working behind the scenes and sometimes elected to Congress. And and yeah, it's it's very um, uh, very strategic and alarmingly successful.
0: Yeah, you. I think it was in the book. I've been consuming a lot. Of media lately to to be able get to it. like totally get it. facilitate conversations and focus on like and make sense of daily life and all this stuff. But I think it was in your book where you you named like a specific number of people that were working in Congress that were from that. Could you give me that breakdown again? Cause it oh my no, mind. I was
1: just thinking that too, and I don't remember the specific. It's in the book. It is. It's in the <laughs> book, like, and crap. I. I can't remember <laughs> at that time, which is the the data was a few years old now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I don't think I had the number. I had the percent, I think. Yeah. I'd have to page through it. It's right here. But uh, yeah, it, it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's given the size of Patrick Henry college. And then right. yeah, it was, it was an astoundingly high number that were coming. From yeah. The
0: ratio, the ratio. And was it, was it just people that were in Congress? Was it like staffers and yeah, such staffers that, were, that were coming and, and, from that? And, okay. Yeah.
1: Interns and yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so again, so pipeline. basically for,
0: yeah, for those of you who haven't, uh, who didn't read the book, first of all, read the book. Second of all, um, they, so what we're talking about is there's a, there was a strategic movement to get People with this specific subset of values into the halls of Congress, and the the rate at which they were successful is astounding. So basically, what Kristen did was she took the amount of people that were working there, and then you know compared those to the amount of people that were from Patrick Henry College. And when I read that number, I was on the treadmill and I like stopped. I was like. <laughs> watts the like there was there was a strategy and it it was not it was a strategy that was that started from from kindergarten like they were schooling kids with the intention to get to yeah. this place and they did it you know what yeah. i
1: mean yes and, and just, just full disclosure i i didn't actually do the math i uh i just cited a journalist who did the math so. perfect
0: perfect <laughs> <laughs> important, important fact there. But um, I think that it's so interesting because you can see this sort of bad theology. Uh, I, I have to be careful because there are gr- I know great evangelicals. I've sat mm-hmm. under some, I have some amazing pastor friends that still fall in that line. Yeah. Um, and I'm by no means disavowing them. If anything, as my own faith has progressed, it's become more expansive instead of uh, constricting. Mm-hmm. So not, this is not hard and fast about every evangelical ever or every Christian ever, but there is a movement that we've seen, this Christian nationalism, it ties into neoliberalism, um, all of these ideas, and they got us to the place where we're having the first coup, you know, the first um, attempted overthrow of the capital since the 1800s. And it's just like, how do you,
1: uh, yeah, yeah. I want to talk about good evangelicals for a bit, because I don't get do, to do that yeah. enough. Um, Go for it. What, what I have um, seen, I mean, through the research, and I think especially through the reception of this book. So again, the book has been out for six months. It, surprisingly, to me and to my publisher, has turned out to be astoundingly popular within evangelical circles. Um, All right. It's most devoted fans are white evangelicals themselves. Hmm. We did not anticipate this at all.
0: I didn't see that coming. I
1: did not. I was <laughs> bracing myself, to be honest, when it published. Um, and and it is, it is true. It is um, being championed now by evangelical leaders, by evangelical pastors, by evangelical people themselves. Uh, my publisher can't keep enough copies in print this is the second Mm. time we're running out because, um, and, and they're trying to figure out where are all these people coming from, uh, and 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 I, I I just wrote a letter to my editor this afternoon. Like, okay, let me try to explain what's happening here. Um, (laughs) what, what is happening is evangelicals themselves now are reading this book. Um, Beth Moore just tweeted about it, right? She's on fire. Yep. She said, you know, if you're going to read one book in 2021, read Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah. And, um, so what that did is it frees people up. Well, if Beth Moore is saying that, then I can talk about it too. So now it's, it's a thing where, you know, if you, if you're an evangelical and you're reading Jesus and John Wayne, you, you post it on Facebook or Twitter, which mm-hmm. is amazing for me to see. And then that, that kind of destigmatizes it. Right. Cause like you said, it's a harsh, harsh title, subtitle, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but what it does now is it is there's a kind of, um, you know, this is a time of, of reckoning. It absolutely is a time of reckoning. And there are many, many evangelicals who have been mm-hmm. um, part of these churches, part of this politics for decades, mm-hmm. who understood this whole, you know, this, this whole kind of ideology, this, this whole, um, you know, political engagement, simply as this is the Christian way this is how Mm -hmm. we are Christian. This is how we are faithful. This is absolutely what they were told from the pulpits. This is what they were Mm -hmm. told by every book they read in their small group Bible study, right? Sitting around with the guys, reading wild at heart, going to promise keepers rallies, good people. They're good friends, right? They're mentors. This was, this was their truth. And this is how they understood they could be good people. Mm-hmm. And many of them experienced moments of um, discomfort or questions, or, you know, I'm it's just ambivalence. But this was mm-hmm. just so powerfully communicated as this is how one is Christian. And they desperately, mm-hmm. genuinely wanted to be faithful Christians, right? Mm-hmm. There was a lot mm-hmm. of goodness mixed in yeah. with this um, personal yeah. relationships, good intentions. And yet, Right, so much of this goodness ended up being channeled in directions that have caused great harm um, because of who was excluded, because of which ideas were very intentionally excluded. Um, Voices of people of color, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, right? uh, On um, uh, issues of sexuality, it would very quickly, as you know, get you defined outside of the fold, and then your voice no longer speaks into these conversations. And those were very intentional exclusions, Um, and, and so, By telling this story and just by showing how that happened, and I think even more importantly showing um, what was really motivating many Mm -hmm. of the people that they looked up to, showing Mm -hmm. what James Dobson was really about, you know, not just, uh, uh, let me give you a little helpful advice with your toddler today, right? Mm -hmm. Although he Mm -hmm. did do that, he did. Mm -hmm. And that's why it was so powerful when he turned towards politics because he was so trusted. He was yep. so trusted and he seemed so not political, right? Right. So, right. so by exactly. revealing how that works, and that's what this book does, I think it frees people up to understand how they were, they weren't hoodwinked, they weren't brainwashed, right? And mm-hmm. nobody's using that language, which is really encouraging to me. They were not brainwashed, right. they were, but they were complicit. And they're yeah. understanding now for the first time fully, or at least more fully, what it was that they were complicit in. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm hearing from so many people. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I get calls from faith leaders um, regularly, just emails. I get hundreds, I, I've gotten hundreds, hundreds of messages mm-hmm. from evangelicals who are just sharing their stories saying, right, this, this is me. I was a part of this. And mm-hmm. I am deeply troubled by that. What, what mm-hmm. can I do now? Right? How can we undo this? And so it's really, uh, yes, there are good evangelicals. There are good evangelicals who have been very complicit in this and many who are owning that complicity, but also understanding for the first time just exactly what they were enmeshed in.
0: Wow, that, that's, that's great to hear. Uh, I'm never at a loss for words and I'm low-key at a loss for words right now because that gives me some sort of hope. Because for so long, I've had to categorize my upbringing and my own coming out and my, my, my just stubborn insistence on still being a part of this. I have to like, I can't understand it. You know what I mean? Because it all seems so unredemptive, especially when you bring in this history um, and this plan. But it's so encouraging to hear that there are people who are understanding their complicity and, And taking action because I don't think that people are people are not really interested in words right now right people are interested in action and I think that's what you see. I mean, that's what I've noticed as a white ally at a Black Lives Matter movement. People don't want to see you out there with the sign. They want to see you at city council holding your, you know, this is happening locally uh, for us, like holding our mayor's feet to the fire because he's appointing the police chief to be the head of the police reform committee. Like you show up in that moment. Don't yeah. tell me you're sorry. Show up and use your straight white male privilege yeah. um, in that moment. Right. And that's really encouraging to me to hear that you're, ha- that you're getting that response, I didn't expect it to be honest with you.
1: Nor did I. Not at all. Not at all. It's it's really been um, overwhelming. It's been yeah. absolutely overwhelming.
0: Yeah, that's really great. I don't even know what to say next. Yes. <laughs> I told you I'm never at a loss for words. So, <laughs> what do you think? So, you know, as an expert evangelical, right? Because you are an evangelical, uh, and with your knowledge of of evangelicalism, because of this research you've done, what does What does moving away from white supremacy and patriarchy and, um, and all sorts of isms like what does that look like is that is that possible like do we have to burn the system down and start again or is it redemptive, what do you think I mean. I don't know. Well, I, <laughs> so, lot, I'll, I'll
1: start by saying, so I'm a historian and I can speak with a lot of authority on the past. So then whenever anybody mm-hmm. asks me to say what we should do now, I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't know. It's, I'm it's not prepared like- for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I've thought a lot about it, obviously. I get asked this a lot, but I always open with that caveat. So That's fair. Um, That's fair. I, I don't know. I don't know mm-hmm. um, how much has to be burned to the ground, mm-hmm. but probably more than most evangelical leaders think. Uh, at least based on some of my conversations. And so, okay. um, you know, I think a lot of people are, um, um, are, are wanting to do something mm. and, uh, and wanting to repent and wanting to reform. Um, mm. And when I have conversations with some of those folks, especially um, men in leadership, Mm-hmm. very, very good people and well-meaning men. Um, I, I tend to be kind of harsh, honestly, I think, um, because you know, the questions I would ask are, um, you know, why does this need to be reformed? Right. Um, if it is as corrupt as it seems to be. yeah.
0: Um,
1: and we know that there are other vibrant, faith traditions out there many that are not predominantly white um why does this why is it so important to you to reform and redeem white evangelical Mm. institutions i mean and Mm. i'm all for like i mean for people who are working to do so like yes 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 but i do like go for it just interrogate that um yeah you know the given that well of course yeah. this is what we need to do and we as leaders need to lead in this and i'm like mm-hmm. are you the best people that you do on this uh i don't know <laughs> um yeah. and and then if you are if you still think you are um okay here's some action steps one is to you know really think about who you have not been listening to mm-hmm. uh and and change that mm-hmm. who you have excluded from your circles, from your faith Mm -hmm. communities, who you have excluded from your conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, And many people can name names, very specific names. Some of these are very big names because when I talk with other leaders, um, Brian McLaren, um, (laughs) Rob Bell, right? Jen Hotmaker. uh, You're
0: naming a lot of people that I know instinctively. Right, right. And
1: so I'm like, well, what does it look like to make amends? But then mm-hmm. the next the next point I like to bring up is okay you know those names right just seems obvious of course yes we we mm-hmm. you know if you're inside white evangelicalism you know those stories what about no. the peoples whose names you don't know because right. they have never been a part of your religious formation or your faith communities
0: yeah they've never been centered they've never
1: been centered um so so how are you going to find those people and again race matters
0: hugely here so much so, so much which yeah.
1: you know which um people of color have been speaking in a prophetic voice at great cost and have you mm-hmm. ignored go find mm-hmm. them, right you mm-hmm. know do this work first and then before you just say okay let's rebuild let's reform yeah. let's you know like if you don't really deconstruct Mm -hmm. then what are you going to be rebuilding? It can't be done too quickly. Now, that said, Mm -hmm. I also talk with faith leaders who are acutely aware of the importance of institutions and Mm -hmm. how hard it is to build an institution. And I have great respect for that too. It is, you need Mm -hmm. money, you need um, uh, volunteers, you need usually years and years and years to build strong institutions. Conservative evangelicals have been doing that for more than half a century. And they have been- amazingly successful. They so have. there is wisdom to at least ask the question, do we burn it all ground all to the ground? If so, right. do we have the resources to rebuild something? And do we mm. agree that something needs to be rebuilt? Which is mm. a very real question. I don't have a good answer for that, but people who study institutions um, can probably speak into this. And so all of which is to say, it's very complicated in terms of what to yeah. do next. Um, and I have no clear answers, but I can at least give certain questions and, and no. hopefully complicate the, the conversation just a bit.
0: I think that it's fantastic uh to complicate this conversation because I think that where the point the reason that we got to the point where we have to have this conversation is because it's they've made it uncomplicated. Uh there's a local pastor here who like knows my name well because he prefers to misgender me in public forums regularly and he actively preaches that confusion is not from God. Yeah. So if you're confused it's from the devil. And I was like what happened to critical thinking? Like this conversation should be complicated. Complicated, because if your if you are if your thought process is uncomplicated, it's coming from your perspective yeah. solely.
1: Yeah,
0: and you you happen to be a straight white male pastor who's also a full time cop, like probably not the best person to preach about the the reasoning of Black Lives Matter, you know. Um, have you, I don't know if you've ever heard of Lisa Sharon Harper. She, yes. uh, she works for Freedom Road. Okay, cool. I used to go to church with Lisa. I love that woman. She's super dope. For those of you who don't know, Lisa Sharon Harper is an African-American woman. Uh, she's also proudly evangelical. And I've really learned a lot um, from listening to her. I, I heard a podcast that she recorded recently. Uh, it was like her and I think maybe four or five other uh, people uh, for Freedom Road, which is like the, the organization that she's working with. But They were talking about the recent move recent Move that the Southern Baptist um, Convention came together, and where like six of the, I think it was six Southern Baptist institutions mm-hmm. just disavowed critical race theory, and they basically said it was evil. Yeah. Um, and I found that conversation to be really fascinating. What are what are your thoughts, like as a white evangelical? What are your thoughts on that conversation?
1: Yeah, I actually listened to that podcast uh, or parts of oh, it. Oh, awesome, so. awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. Um, uh, I, I mean. First of all, you're, you, to get back to your quote about confusion, yeah. right? That, that, yeah. that, uh, you know, if you've read Jesus and John Wayne, you know, that that is a frequent refrain yes. uh, you know, Confusion <laughs> is evil and, yep. and confusing. And, and that's where they want, you know, very clear gender binaries, very clear mm. hierarchies of, you know, uh, of power and authority and submission. Um, so yes, he, <laughs> he, he learned that, that language somewhere. Um, he sure did. Yep. Yeah, but uh, no, around, you know, I think that the the debates within white evangelicalism, and again, to clarify, although I would be categorized probably because of my membership in the Christian Reform Church, I don't actually yeah. identify as evangelical. Right. I, I say that not I to apologize. like separate myself from evangelical, but not to have kind of this insider credibility of, you know, like right. I, I just want to, really, I'm you know, evangelical adjacent, one foot in, one foot out. And so I my, like my critique of evangelicalism in this book is, is done with a little bit more emotional distance, I think, than, Mm. than the critique of many who have grown up deep in the heart of white evangelicalism, Mm. where it's, it tends to be a lot more emotional and, um, which is both good and bad, right? I mean, there's not one, one isn't better than the other, but just to position myself, I've thought a lot about this and I've always had one foot out because I, I, grew up in a small town, Dutch immigrant, confessionally reformed kind of outposts. And so not deep right. in the heart of this. Right. Um, so I think it's been a little bit easier. I don't feel like I've betrayed my, my mentors, my faith community in the same way that I think evangelicals mm-hmm. who are in uh, deep on the inside really have to negotiate that. And that's just, hasn't <laughs> been part of my, my story. Um, but yes, with critical race theory, and that that's a really great example of, um, uh, the, the, Kind of closed system within white evangelicalism to uh arbitrate truth and error mm-hmm. and the fact that these six white male uh right seminary leaders in the sbc felt yeah. that they had the authority and wisdom to weigh in on a concept that frankly my guess is five years ago maybe none of them had heard about, or maybe a couple of them had. Right. I mean, I teach race, gender, and cultural history. And, and, you know, it was like a couple of years ago that started to bubble up. I'm like, critical race theory, what are they talking about? I mean, I do critical theory. I'm not, I'm not in legal studies. So I don't do, you know, the critical race theory in the same way, but I'm like, okay, when, when they're saying what it is, like, I think I get that, but it's not like, I mean, I can get to the very same endpoints that critical race theorists get us to just by being a decent U.S. historian, right? Mm-hmm. It's just understanding the history of racial disparity and, and how that works itself out in housing and how that works itself out in entitlement programs and how that works itself. Out. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. It really isn't. Right. It's, just, it's just basic history. Um, yeah. All of which is to say, to get back to these six guys, right, you know, the, the fact that um, you know, there's just this, this supreme confidence that they have access to the whole truth mm-hmm. and that they have been uh, and that they have a duty to God and mm-hmm. to everybody under their power, right? Mm-hmm. Again, this hierarchical um, power yep. structure is really important. That Mm -hmm. that they they just have the supreme confidence that they can and must weigh in on any issue that comes before them, and a lack of awareness that um, their positionality might help them to see some things but really blind them to many other things and mm-hmm. and so i think that's a, what we see and and so it isn't along with that then comes you know because they've also they're part of a denomination and part of institutions that have um, really you know up until very recently pursued well and, and and i mean practically up to the present practice you know segregation
0: yes means yeah. that
1: their um their understanding of the truth has rarely been challenged um, nice. by Christians who are positioned in other ways, especially on racial justice issues. And yeah. that's just so important. You know, in my own experience when I moved to Grand Rapids, um, I took up a job you know, here at Calvin University, so predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly white Christian institution. Mm-hmm. So it was important to me to find a diverse church, um, and so I joined a multiracial, bilingual uh, church in in the city. And you know, it was by being a part of that church that I heard stories that uh, about police. Mm -hmm. You know, from uh, um, a member of my small group, African-American woman, uh, an elder in our church, tell harrowing stories of um, uh, her encounters with the police in Mm -hmm. Grand Rapids, right, you know, a few blocks from our church of what it was like to be tailed by a cop, what it was like to be arrested. You know, she was a cleaning lady, worked in the evenings and what that, you know, what her encounters, if I hadn't heard those stories, I would only have my own experience to draw on. And in my own experience as a white mom of three who sometimes speeds and has always been treated with such grace and deference. Uh And every once in a while I get a ticket, but you know, like, it's just like, so my experience of the police is not her experience of the police. And I have no business judging the state of law enforcement in this country based just on my experience. My experience is part of it and it, it and it needs to be part of the conversation but it's not the only part right and so that's yeah. that's a long rambling answer to say yes it's okay. it was you know they they really have no business weighing in but what's what's interesting is to understand that they can't conceive of the fact yes. that um multiple perspectives are necessary on um that issue but then on a lot of issues, right? They, yeah. This confidence and direct access to the truth.
0: I think that that is perhaps one of the most insidious parts that you really brought out in this book was, like you said, that that hierarchical, unquestioning, unwavering, like put your shoes on, get the kids, and drink the Kool Aid kind of, you know, little cult metaphor. Uh, but but that kind of unwavering dedication, um, and I think that you know, to kind of I'm a verbal processor, so I'm processing with you right now. Um, But I found a, uh, I saw a post um, on Facebook earlier today, which like every bad story in life starts with, I saw a post on Facebook today. But I saw a post on Facebook today uh, from, from a friend of mine, someone who I really, really love and, and respect, and it, they've just been a great person. Uh, they, have a, they have a son who is um, like a little bit younger, like a teenager, um, has autism, super, super smart, has decided to really be politically involved. Um, his politics are informed by where he lives. And, um, he was saying today that the post was super eloquent. And another reason why I love this kid, but it literally said something like strip the flesh from my bones, but I'm still going to love Donald Trump Facebook. You know, you can censor him, but I'm still going to love him. And it's that same, I, I see such parallels, uh, between these evangelical leaders that we're talking about, like, you know, your, your Mark Driscoll's um, and, and your Billy Graham's and and some people in my town who I won't name, but everybody watching knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> this unwavering, un, like I am unapproachable. You cannot question me. I have yeah. authority. I see that in the church and yeah. in, the, in this regime. And I think yeah. that this has i haven't been talking about this publicly very long but this i've been learning about it for like the past year and a half two years and i I, what actually tipped my head uh towards the direction of of investigating evangelicalism was what i saw in politics currently and i think that's the insidious and dangerous nature is that we're not supposed to question like what kind of leadership is that are you so fragile that you can't handle a question like I don't know. Right, right. But
1: the way it's been framed, right, is that God establishes and ordains these men mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. positions of authority. And it, this is taught by men in positions of authority. <laughs> Imagine that. And right. um, <laughs> weird. <laughs> when you say it, it's like, really? But um, right. yeah, like, when
0: you say it, you're like, mm.
1: right, right. <laughs> Um, So again, there are many, many people who want to be obedient and, and honestly, you know, as a Christian there, I I can say that, that, you know, submission to Mm -hmm. mutual submission and and submitting your wills and desires to something, you know, better or greater or, you know, uh, to, to Christ really this model of sacrifice is a part of christian teaching and so mm-hmm. there there right there are truths here now the question is you know does that kind of submission uh, to, and and this countercultural submission does that look like bill gothard says uh, mm-hmm. Which is this very hierarchical? It doesn't have to be Bill Gothard, right? We could just take anyone at this point from you know, any of them, like know. little white supremacist Lego pieces. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> does this, is that what biblical um, servanthood looks like? Is that mm-hmm. what, you know? Um, um, you know, sacrificial discipleship looks like, you know, when I, and this is where we have to get theological then. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause some people are saying that's exactly what the biblical model is. You know, when I read the scriptures and when I look at the new Testament and when I look at the ministry of Christ uh, and the kind of revolutionary nature of, it, it seems to me to be upending hierarchies, mm-hmm. To be subverting our expectations of what sure is um, what what is power and how is power used, right? It's just it's a mess. It's a total mm-hmm. like not what anybody expected. The Messiah mm-hmm. is not who people were looking for, um, all through the ministry of Christ and the early church, right? It just does not follow the models of grasping for power and of asserting authority over others. And so yeah. um, you know, not this kind of coercive authority. And, mm-hmm. and so again, there's, this, this ultimately is going to come to a, a kind of theological conversation. Um, but it's helpful yeah. to have these theological conversations understanding how each of us has been shaped and formed um, entering into those conversations.
0: Absolutely. Uh, And I think, you know, not to like try to force it to circle back around, but it really just did with that statement for me and with my own understanding, with my journey of deconstructing my privilege, um, because I very clearly remember the moment that uh, the last time that I said I was colorblind, the last time I said, I don't see color. I remember that moment. And it was with the best intention in my heart, but someone with another white person with great love told me I didn't know that I was racist until I lived and worked amongst black people. And we talked about it. Yeah, It's the last time I ever said that. Yeah, And, and so for me, I've had to unlearn my privilege or, or, or I guess learn my privilege. You can't unlearn it. Like I have it, you know what I mean? Um, but in this journey, this is what's led me to this, this kind of realization of faith and, and where my faith came from and how do we do better? Uh, and how do we not c- create systems that literally, uh, invoke the authority of the one true way, truth and the life to storm the steps of the Capitol and poop in the hallways. <laughs> how did we, how, uh, how you know what I mean and I so I, this has been a conversation that's evolving for me but I really like I said I think it started uh it started with unlearning my privilege it started with with putting positioning myself with people who are different and then as a ginormous cosmic kick in the butt it it, it was really furthered when I realized that I was different and I had to do something about it you know that that nothing makes you uh re understand your faith like being told that you're going to hell by it you know yeah. And I think that that's been, it's been a, a, awful, um, but it's also been great because it brought me to where I am now. And so now we can engage these conversations about faith and politics and, and we can find the, the good people that were just complicit um, and we can teach and we can do and we can talk uh, better. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, it's it's just a really big. I don't know. It's it's really big. The understanding of it as a culture, I think, was freeing for me, yeah. uh, because it gave some sort of redemptiveness to the fact that I was, like, I was complicit, but it wasn't like the whole system crumbled. Like there is, I I wasn't just drinking the Kool Aid my whole life because there was something there that was mm-hmm. meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that we have to find that going forward and we have to work to dismantle all those systems because like you said, you know, like you you, you literally proved, I would challenge anybody to debate you after this book, that, that uh, white supremacy uh, and patriarchy are baked in yeah. to evangelicalism in America. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, you know, kind of looking forward to, we don't, we will still have differences. I think we need to have a better... Um, a better system to process theological difference right and yes. uh, and one that is not this um this this kind of uh uh you know siege mentality and a sense yeah. of you know everybody's out to get us and so and, and it was interesting in my research to see how much kind of military um metaphors uh, structured ministries uh, in places like, you know, Jerry Falwell, Seniors Church, Thomas Road Baptist, Mark Driscoll's, um, Mars Hill, the idea that if everybody is out to get against us out to get us, right, and this is, of course, yeah. what we were telling everybody that everybody's out to get them, um, then we are in yep. war, and, in, and war demands ultimate sacrifice, as in mm-hmm. your time, your money, give it to me. And mm-hmm. it demands ultimate loyalty to me, right? And that's yes. what we saw. Um, and that's what we see. And and so anybody who might challenge the authority of the leader, anybody who might challenge any of the teachings out, mu- they mm-hmm. you either must submit or you must get out. We need to keep pure so that we can keep strong because this is war. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Right. So again, to get a little theological <laughs> as Let's a Christian, do it. Let's do it. Um, I, you know, I would say, suggests that it's not up to us to guard truth. If, if we believe Mm -hmm. in God's sovereignty, if we believe this, this faith, this story, right. That, you know, Mm -hmm. and this all powerful God and this incarnation and all of this stuff, which is really hard to believe if you're not a believer, right. Yeah. But if we do, then we ought to be cool with the fact that it is not up to us. It is not up to you or me to get every piece of the puzzle Absolutely right, and then defend it to the death, by which we mean other mm-hmm. people's death. Um, right? right. So, so, so that's to me like we need to have a stronger faith um, in God in order to um, decrease our own significance and de- decrease the significance of our need to protect every. Doctrinal truth that we perceive mm. to be true, and so I think my mm-hmm. favorite quote in the entire book is actually Rachel Den Hollander's quote. Rachel Den Hollander, of course, uh, uh, absolutely instrumental figure in uh, you know the fir- first witness in the case against Larry Nassar, um, sexual mm. abuse um, at Michigan State gymnastics. That was huge. Yeah. Um, but then she she um, addressed the church as well, address mm-hmm. the evangelical church. And what she found very quickly is that they were cheering her on as long as she was taking on abuse outside of, mm-hmm. of uh, church circles. As soon as she said, Hey guys, we've got some problems here too. Uh, right. Run yeah. out of her own church, essentially. And, uh, and, and she ha- didn't stay quiet and she is so in- incredibly eloquent. And in this book, I quote, I quote her where she says, um, you know, pushing back against Um, evangelical culture of silence and of complicity in cases Mm -hmm. of abuse, right? We need to Mm -hmm. protect the witness of the church. We need to protect, you know, the pastor reputation. We need to protect, protect. She says the gospel of Jesus Christ does not need your protection. God does not need your protection. Mm. God only asks for obedience, for faithfulness. And what does that look like? It looks like doing justice. And yeah. I just think that, that that's really the moral center of this book, right? God does not need your protection, whether you're yes. conservative, whether you're liberal, whether you're, so let go of that and just seek to be obedient.
0: Yeah, that's so true because, uh, and this is something that we haven't entirely touched on yet. And I, I'm glad you brought it up now that, um, now that I've, you know, taken up so much of your time here, but uh, this is the militant uh, nature of white uh, evangelicalism too, because that's like, I that I think along with race, right. And along with patriarchy, we haven't entirely touched on the militant nature. Um, But there is so much, and I'm going to forever rewind the moment where you said, um, defend God to death. And by that, I mean, (laughs) <laughs> literal people's death. Uh, that was fantastic because it's so true. Like this is a tool that's literally being used. You know, we're supposed to bring to quote my friend, uh, Glenn Seper who is an, another podcaster for the, what if podcast, he said, you know, the King we're supposed to bring, um, the kingdom, the Bible is supposed to be a tool to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, but instead people are turning it into a sword to kill people, yeah. you know? And that's what, there's this weird penchant towards violence. Like if anything, I think in Isaiah it said to beat your swords into plowshares. Yeah. But instead, we have my my mom's husband has a hat that says "God guns" in the Bible. Oh yeah, what chapter and verse? Like what chapter and verse? Where did that come from? How did we get there? You know, exactly. what? um, I'd love you to share some more of your thoughts on just like the militant nature that's built into this system. Yeah, like you know,
1: that. guns are are you know very early on back in the seventies already that you know guns are are critical to. Um, fighting the emasculation of American boys, right, this over feminization, um, the feminist movement, so this violence is linked up with, um, you know, true masculinity, um, Christian masculinity, Um, that's the John Wayne, right, part too. this Mm -hmm. idea Mm -hmm. of a gunslinger who, you know, um, when push comes to shove, you know that he knows how to use his gun, and so usually he doesn't have to, but when he does, he will, um, that kind of an attitude, right, and that's our hero, that's our conception of, of heroic masculinity and of Christian manhood, um, and so this militancy, right, it's it's guns, it's love of guns and power because they can be wielded by men who have been charged by God to protect their family to protect their, their faith and to protect their nation, right? This idea of mm-hmm. masculine protector is really at the heart of the whole ideology and believing that God ordained men to be protectors, mm-hmm. but this is a dangerous world. And so you're going to need violence to protect and you're yeah. going to need not just defensive violence, but because the world is so dangerous, you're going to need preemptive violence, right? This is pre-emptive very clear, a clear theme throughout the book. And, and you can, and that applies to the culture wars mm-hmm. and it applies to real wars. Uh, it can apply to law enforcement, right mm-hmm. um, it's, it's very versatile <laughs> and it's very um, versatile. <laughs> And it also very much uh, one of the themes I trace throughout this book um, in many of the chapters and the one chapter is devoted uh, really you know to Colorado Springs and the, this um, tightening alliance between conservative evangelicalism and the US military that had really been going on since at least the Korean War um, solidified during the Vietnam War and um, incredibly important behind the scenes today. Uh, And so um, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a theme throughout the book with all sorts of implications Mm -hmm. for military, um, for people who serve, um, whether they're evangelical or not, Mm -hmm. and uh, implications for foreign policy and, and, uh, and, and for, you know, how the military operates some really astounding stories when you look at the uh, work of Jerry Boykin when you look at you know connections between Guantanamo and um, Abu Ghraib and I mean there's a lot here um, that should cause great concern Um, But I think that we're also, this is something that I have my eye on. Um, I have had my eye on the last four years. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we had this, if you want to call it insurrection, attempted coup. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've, I've actually been given my research, um, watching for signs for this for more than four years now. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I paid careful attention to, knowing the history that I know, was uh, what sort of relationship Donald Trump had with the military.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I actually took great comfort uh, in his um, uh, in fights that he would have, particularly with military brass, with the generals, mm-hmm. with those who weren't tough enough, who couldn't get done what he wanted to get done, and he, he would ridicule them, and that doesn't play well within mm-hmm. the military writ large. And so I would actually take comfort in that, you know, as, as ridiculous or, or, or uh, you know, yeah. with him and, and John McCain and with, you know, like disrespect yeah. of the military, anytime he would do that, I'd kind of breathe a little sigh of relief. Like that, that's mm. what you want. You don't want this Alliance. Uh, it could be really dangerous law right. enforcement. We see a much tighter Alliance, obviously. Yes, we do. Yeah. And so when we're looking at the events of this week, those mm-hmm. are the things that I'm looking at. What kind of alliances are we going to see? Um, mm-hmm. and honestly, if you're, I can't even believe we're having this conversation, right? We're talking about, okay, likelihood of a successful coup. Yeah. Um, How are we, we would,
0: having this conversation?
1: <laughs> well, What we would look for is connections between Trump and not just, the, I mean, he has the Republican party, um, mm-hmm. and, and then law enforcement and military. And that's what you have to keep your eye on those things. And mm-hmm. this story in Jesus and John Wayne is, um, It offers a lot of warnings, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, And and then, you know, Trump's base, white evangelicals, um, you can kind of see where the majority are going to land. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I I think I love what I love so much um, and not to like, I'm going to steal some of your thunder a little bit, but um, so uh, Christina is actually working on another book and I'm, I'm really excited for that to come out because this book in this book, she weaves together so expertly. I talk about, I talk about you like this, even when you're not on my Zoom call, <laughs> um, but she weaves together so expertly the, the ideas of, 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 Um, masculinity and uh, conservatism, evangelicalism, patriarchy, all of those ideas together. And she shows how it's literally baked into the expected code of conduct of a male in this system right is this militant nature like it's all gender politics faith it's all tied together and i'm really excited because she's also going to be writing a book about um about the femininity as well and like the female role in all of this and as someone who was um as someone who is indoctrinated as a, as an evangelical female uh, and now i have to function in this world of evangelical you know that's in, so heavily influenced by evangelical males i can't wait to see this because I'm very, I'm frequently quoted as saying, if I had to read one more devotional with flowers on it, I was going to throw up. Um, <laughs> like it's see, just you
1: know you know the story oh, you know what I'm going to oh, be writing yeah it's, yeah, it's yeah. so much fun I I because as I was writing Jesus and John Wayne I spent I have a chapter on evangelical femininity but really historically so back to the mm-hmm. 70s when we can really see these things coming together this emphasis on domesticity on submission on beauty and on, on sexual submission Mm -hmm. Um, And sexual objectification, and so I I sketched that out in the book, and then you know, and then the book really moves more towards um, by the end, you know, to politics and to sex and to sex, uh, sexual abuse, and you know, and that's where the book just really needed to go, or this book needed to go. But I knew as I was writing, I'm like, there's more to be said. I need to, I need to pull the femininity strand through because even though things like sexual objectification and um, of women and and you know, submission and um, domesticity, like they are all still there, but they've been updated. Yeah. <laughs> and, right, right, right. And I really, you know, I don't want to leave the impression that evangelical women are still back in the the you know Maribel Morgan and Elizabeth Elliot days, because mm-hmm. they're not. And mm-hmm. so, what this next book does is it allows me to to tell the story of evangelical femininity. Um, so the, the book is called live, laugh, love, which I'm in love Perfect. with the
0: title. Oh my God. I yeah. love it. It's the only time I'll buy something with those words. in Exactly. That
1: exactly. It. Live, laugh, <laughs> love. And it, it so it, it looks at, um, ideals of, uh, Christian femininity, not just evangelical, about evangelicalism mm-hmm. is, is central, but not, it's not just, it's, it's more generic, right? You know how that works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, Uh, Generic mm -hmm. white Christian womanhood. Um, But then it analyzes it in terms of post-feminism, neoliberalism, and white supremacy.
0: Ooh, I'm so excited. Uh, Friends who are watching, I'm literally going to try to get Kristen back on our books for (laughs) conversations for very soon after that book drops, because like, there's just so much I feel like I might find even more validation from that book than I did from yeah. this one, right? Because this is very external for me. This is like, I've never related to this because I wasn't cultured to relate to this. Right. But I, I you know, I remember sneaking, um, I remember sneaking my dad's copy of Wild at Heart and reading it yes. and feeling so guilty. Right. And so, I, and I also remember it in, you know, stark contrast to that, like, I just didn't identify with that. And I always was beating myself up for not meeting these ideals of yeah. what femininity should be like. I was a shit woman. <laughs> I was real bad at it. And so <laughs> I'm really excited to read this book and see how the interplay comes through. And I do, I do think it's an important thing that we didn't, we didn't touch on much here, but about the way that, um you know, uh, white, evangelical militant masculinity really plays into rape culture. Um, and there's, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, couple parts in your book where you talk about, you know, how women are, uh, not you, but you talk about how the, the, the literature was saying that women are supposed to be sexually submissive, even at their own, even at the risk of their own discomfort, they are supposed to be pretty and beautiful and, and all of these things. And, um, and all of these, these expectations definitely play into, you know, the me too movement to be honest i'm excited to see this yeah awesome well Kristen I could talk to you all night but I'm sure that my wife would not be happy with that I'm sure that my kitten would not be happy with that so I want to say I really want to say thank you so much because as someone who really values education and learning and not just like I'm gonna pray about it and just biblical literalists like only taking those as your sources I appreciate that you are a scholar and a person of faith and that you've somehow managed to like retain a an a, like a beautiful sense of why faith matters in the midst of all of this because you can tell that it's something you're committed to. So, I want to thank you for being the 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 scholar and the historian that I needed for my own personal growth and development. Um I literally was like fangirling and like screaming when you said you would come on on the video tonight. So I just have to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, And I really, really, really sincerely have been changed by your work. Uh, And I really appreciate all that you put into it.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me and best wishes to you in your journey. And as you start seminary too, I hope, I hope it, I hope it goes well and I hope you enjoy it.
0: I am really, really excited for it. So uh, real quick, before we go, um, I'm gonna give a little bit of conversations intro, but before uh, info, but before I do that, would you let people know where they can find you on social media if they want to interact with you more?
1: Sure. Sure. I am on Twitter at KK Dumay, So that's K K D U M E Z. I'm on Twitter way too much. Um, <laughs> so I always have a lot to say there. I also have a Facebook author page. I'm on Facebook because 70% of evangelicals are on Facebook. And so um, I'm on Facebook also at KK Dumay. and I'm on Instagram, but I'm terrible about updating Instagram, but I need to be there more for live, laugh, love. So I will do better. Right. And that, that's just Kristen Dumez
0: all right awesome thank you so much Uh, friends real quick before we go I just wanted to let you know this has been conversations we are here uh, every Sunday usually at 7pm Eastern Standard Time just depends on the coast uh, and the location of our guests I also wanted to let you know that much like Kristen we are also now on Twitter so you can follow us if you want I'm a terrible I've been a terrible tweeter historically but it really just seems like a good place to get in social media arguments so I I decided I decided to start a Twitter so you can follow us. Uh, you can look up conversations official and you can find the link to the Twitter. If you go to conversationsofficial.com. if you scroll all the way down to the footer, you'll see all of our social media links also on conversationsofficial.com, You can find a link to our merch shop and you can find a link to our Patreon and our buy me a which is good for a one-time donation currently, uh, We don't really need a ton of money to run because I've already bankrupt myself doing this, but what we do need is transcription services to make these videos more accessible to people who are hard of hearing. Um, I have learned through my own experience that accessibility and interfaith posture takes action, so we got to take action in this manner. If you're interested in helping us get transcription services, you can visit either Patreon or buymeacoffee.com, and if you donate... I will send you one of these fantastic little stickers here or maybe two if I'm getting wild. So, but if you'd like to help us uh, become more accessible to, to all folks, uh, hop on over to conversationsofficial.com. Kristen, thank you so much. I, I so sincerely look forward to reading your next book and I absolutely am going to be in your inbox as soon as I hit end on this recording to see if we can get you back on once your new book comes out. Thank you so much and have a great evening. And thank you everybody for watching. Have a good night. This has been the Conversations Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you have any questions or comments or just want to get involved, feel free to join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Conversations Official on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. We're available on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining the conversation.